millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. From Justice, in conversation with Edwina Grosvenor. One thing I really enjoyed about your book was the fact that you bring men into the narrative and that this, this is an issue that isn't just for women, about women. So there's a bit in your book where you say um, to turn men into the enemy is futile. Um, of course. In these discussions that we're having about, you know, wanting to change the world and men and women partnering as colleagues and friends and lovers and husbands and wives and whatever our relationships are and as parents to our children, what we want is equity. This week, Edwina is speaking to Helena Kennedy QC, the human rights lawyer, about her new book, Eve Was Shamed, and about how she thinks women are being failed by the criminal justice system. Helena, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about your latest book. Your last book, was it? In 1992, Eve was framed. Yes. But there was Just Law as well. And I did Just Law in between, which was not specifically about women, but was was about problems around civil liberties and uh, human rights. And I wrote that in 2004. But Eve was framed, um, was written in 1992. And I have to say, I thought that that would be the last time that I would write a whole thing on women. That was 26 Um, years ago. Yeah. And I've been following, of course, great changes have taken place, better numbers of women on the bench, half of lawyers are women in the more than that in the law schools and coming through into the profession. You know, we've tweaked the law here and there and tried to get change. This book is saying have we got there? Have we achieved mm-hmm. it? And I'm afraid I'm saying that the British justice system is still failing women. Obviously we've made huge advances and we're much more knowledgeable and it's on the agenda now that the law can let women down. But actually, I think that the seriousness of this came to the fore with Me Too, mm. with calling guys out. Yeah, And it was a form of civil disobedience and civil disobedience happens when people feel that the system is, is not working for them for some reason. And what young women are saying is that, you know, we're not getting justice from the courts, therefore we're going to go for ourselves on online. And I'm saying in this book, 
well, that's not the way to get justice. But we have to ask ourselves, why is it that women feel so let down by the system? And really saying that while a lot has changed, I mean, certainly a lot has happened, um, but we still haven't got right down into the attitudes and the cultural change that has to take place in order Mm. to get justice for women. And the numbers of women in prison um, is still a scandal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You're a passionate human rights lawyer. What Mm. was it um, in your upbringing that led you to do the work that you do? Because... There's probably a story there. Well, it's, it's a bit like you having a story, Edwina, because <laughs> you know, here you are, a, a young woman who came from an aristocratic family, and yet you're spending all your time doing wonderful things about the prison uh, system. Um, I came from a working class family, the other end of the spectrum, in Glasgow. Um, but I had really fine parents, wonderful parents. And uh, I can't get away from the fact that it was I was brought up in the Catholic tradition, and my parents really believed in social justice. And they were very good in the, the things that they did in their community and and their belief system, which was that nobody is less than you and nobody is better than you. Mm. And I think that egalitarian sense has you know, been there in, since I was a child. But once I started um, studying law, I was very alert to ways in which working class people had, had difficulties within the system. Um, Which means that access to justice access. and being able to pay lawyers and all, all of that. I mean, I remember as a child, my mother, we lived in an area where there, was, there were lots of very old tenement buildings. And I remember a slate coming off a roof and almost blinding my mother. It split her head open and Oh damage her eye and stuff. And people saying to her that that was about the failure of landlords to keep the building in good repair and she should go to lawyers about it. But my, my mother would never have wanted to go to a, a law firm because the idea of stepping into a law firm, she was fearful that it was going to immediately involve cost and, and mm. we didn't have the wherewithal. And I think lots of people still feel that. But when I started practising, I was drawn towards the criminal law and then I began to see very clearly those people who who were not involved in the making of that law and who were disadvantaged by it. And that was not just working class people, but it was also in particularly women, um, people from minorities and, uh, and people whose sexuality was made them different. People who were not in the mainstream and who didn't have access to power had not been able to influence the making of law. Mm. So my original book, Eve Was Framed, was about the fact that law was made by men. And right. that's just and a fact of life. And it's written by a group of people that potentially aren't representative of, yeah, right. of our societies yeah, and of the country as a whole. That's right. And so it's not going to be surprising to us that, that law therefore reflects their perspective on life and on the world and on society as they see it and on the ways in which transgressions, offences, crimes are committed. And often it's very different for women, as, as you and I know. And I've always loved your work, Edwina, because you've, you know, you're a new generation of really committed women wanting to change things. And I really do think this is a moment to be seized because mm. um, we've got to let people know that the, the system of law is not working well enough for women. And we have to ask the questions about why and we have to talk about the way in which prejudice can often be embedded in prejudices against um, uh, you know, particularly um, women who have been damaged by their lives experiences and how they end up often in prison when they should, it's the last place they should be. Hmm. On the back of your book it says two women a week are killed by a spouse or partner. Every seven minutes a woman is raped. The police receive one phone call per minute about domestic violence. Women and children are being trafficked on an industrial scale. I mean, it's a pretty I sort of picture. work in this space and even just reading that makes my sort of... Yeah. 
your skin crawl. I mean, it, and what you and I know is that if you look at the numbers of women in prison, you know, we always say prison should be confined to those who are violent and who are a, a danger to society. And yet 87% of women in prison have not committed violent offences. Mm. And then the numbers of women who've experienced um, violence or, or sexual abuse um, in their upbringing, um, who've come from families with real trouble and problems mm. and who've ended up having addiction problems and depending on drink and so on. Yeah. And they've really low self-esteem and don't feel good about themselves and are very self-punishing. You know, we, yeah. the rest of us don't have to punish them at all because they're so self-punishing. That lack of understanding is something that we've got to, re, you know, redress. Yeah, you said something interesting there about violent women, but of course, women who will fight back and potentially kill in self-defence doesn't make them a violent person. So actually, I think we also have a job to do, don't we, on sort of assessing kind of what's violence and what's risk. Yes. And if someone has killed their husband in self-defence, a terrible situation on the whole but that doesn't make that woman a risk to the to rest society. of society. I know, I know. And you obviously have worked with, I mean, what, hundreds or thousands of women who've been in those sorts of... Well, I've done a very high number of cases of women who ended up killing, and usually because they've been battered or abused or heavily controlled. And I think that we've got to understand and contextualise um, the experience of people who are coming before the courts, and particularly women, um, because they usually have got there because they themselves have been victimised. Mm. And trauma plays oh, a trauma. big part. Yeah. The adverse childhood experiences that people talk yes. a lot about sort of at the minute. The thing, though, that you and I know, Edwina, is that it's not that, an all, that, that work hasn't been done on all of this. You know, yeah. we've had any number of reports. Oh, no, don't the, start me. Yeah. I'm reading a book about Elizabeth Fry at the minute. <laughs> 200 years ago, in 1818, oh. I'm reading things that Elizabeth Fry was saying, and I've been advising the government for the last five or six years, mm. and we're literally having the same conversations. Yes. I d it sort of makes me laugh, but it's also sort of not very funny. I know, of course. <laughs> and uh, and you have to ask why, and it's where politics in, in interfaces with this. And it doesn't matter what the complexion of the government is politically. There's a great deal of pressure on politicians and on governments to um, answer the, the cry of the public to say we want to feel safe, we want to be secure, we want crime to be you know reduced mm. and we want toughness on crime. And to appear tough on crime, you can ramp up sentences and you can ramp up the use of prison when often it's just not the, the way to deal with the social problem. No, and often the people who are paying for the consequence of that are the taxpayer, but they often don't realise that actually they're paying to make a situation worse and actually when these people come out they are no safer. Absolutely. Um, but it's a big complex. If we'd, a bet, if we'd a better conversation with the general public then we, you know, they may, they may recognise. Mm -hmm. And usually it's interesting when, when I speak at public meetings and if this issue of imprisonment comes up it's so interesting because generally when you have a, a, a rational discussion with people and say but look, you know um, many of these women have got a drink problem or a, a drugs problem because of of what they've been through and they're actually dealing with their own internal pain. What they need is support and help. People agree and see that mm, as being the much more absolutely. effective. Um, it's just we need to have better conversations. Absolutely. And to be fair, this government, the female offender strategy that was published in June, I think it was this year, to be fair to them, said uh, some really sensible things yeah. that the majority of women, as you said, are in for nonviolent crimes. 
They should be better dealt with in the community. They don't pose that risk to the public. Mm. And of course, their children need to stop being removed from them because that is so damaging, not only to the woman, but of course, to the children who are the innocent victim in Mm. the whole sort of situation. So there's definitely been a shift towards that understanding. But then I guess it's that sort of Mariana's trench that sits between words in reports and action. That's true. And that trench isn't getting Let's, let's much. go back to Jean Corston when Labour was in government. 11 years uh, ago. Yes, and she brought out a report and again it was looking at these issues, which I mean 10 years previously <laughs> I'd written about. And it's the same stuff, you know, saying, look, um, when women have got these problems, why don't we have small units and sort of humane conditions in which they can live, address some of the trauma that they've experienced and perhaps look at the business of training because often they've they've never had much of an education because what's happened to them in their lives has meant that they've not had the opportunity of accessing good schooling or or training. And that what they want to do is to be able to acquire those things in order to think about working and and holding down a job, as well as addressing their addiction problems or their drink problems. And so that, you know, holistic thing would be much more successful. And doing it in a big, highly regimented prison is is never successful. And it's cost effective. Government cares about pound signs and society cares about being safer. It's like, well, how about we keep society safe, we reduce the cost for the government and everyone's happy. Yeah, I know. Um, but that's sensible and maybe that's... Yeah. Um... <laughs> I, I did a television programme recently up in Scotland because the um, the Scottish government has devolved and their prison system is in the same part of the state as ours and they've, uh, they've looked at the business of women and they're actually reducing the one sort of prison they've got for serious crime and there are some women who commit serious crimes and, mm-hmm. they, and they really need d- proper detention. But they're looking at making one central prison which is um, going to have maximum 80 women and then a set of sort of, if you like, hubs where there will be houses in which women will be, you know, there will be a lock on the door at night, but there'll be movement and they'll be able to go out to jobs and they'll be able to go out for therapy and work to be done and greater contact with children before they actually then uh, go out to rebuild their lives. And also that many more will just never go into any kind of custodial type situation at all. And I think that we do have to be just having a much greater sort of range of possibilities here and be putting more money into community responses um, for women. Absolutely. And from the judge's point of view and from a magistrate's point of view, surely it is about being able to have places to send women if and, you don't want to send them to yeah, prison. I mean, is that I'm, right? It's hard for judges and hard for magistrates because mm. the range of options for them is so limited. Absolutely. And we should be much more inventive about creating better ranges of options. Absolutely. Um, because women do often don't have financial resource to pay fines. Community service arrangements often don't have women in mind because with young children that they're caring for or other caring responsibilities. And so we have to sort of devise better systems than we have at present. Mm. From Justice, you're listening to In Conversation with Edwina Grosvenor. This week, Edwina is speaking to human rights lawyer Baroness Helena Kennedy QC. One thing I really enjoyed about your book was the fact that you bring men into the narrative and that this this is an issue that isn't just for women about women. This is about our fathers, our sons, our brothers. So there's a bit in your book where you say um, to turn men into the enemy is futile. 
Um, of course. In these discussions that we're having about, you know, wanting to change the world and men and women partnering as colleagues and friends and lovers and husbands and wives and whatever our relationships are and as parents to our children, what we want is equity. And so for men too, this is going to enrich all of our lives if we can improve things. And my concern about what's happening in the courts just now is that we all bring our baggage of our lives and our upbringings and we still have unspoken even attitudes which are about what is appropriate womanhood mm. and about what our expectations are of women and whether we actually have higher expectations of women than we do of men. And certainly when it comes to sexual matters, we often do. And we, we do all this business of slut shaming and uh, shaming women if we think that they are, haven't performed well enough as a mother, which we tend not to do in the same way um, in relation to men. And I think that we really have to examine some of the ways in which we make judgments. Mm. And so... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This book is really a call for us to find ways of challenging that. And it's only going to be done if men to participate in it. And we all know wonderful men who share our views of how we would like a fairer world and justice for women. But it does mean that men are going to have to be much more active in calling out men who don't behave well and calling out bad behaviour. I mean, there is a way in which men say to me just now that they feel that they're on the back foot because of uh, the whole Me Too movement. Well, maybe being on the back foot isn't such a bad thing if it means <laughs> yeah. you're having to think before you say certain things, yeah. before you do certain things in relation well, to women. exactly. And surely it's every person's sort of individual sort of job, if you like, to get on the front foot and wonder exactly why yeah. you are on the back foot yeah. and why is that and what do yeah. we maybe need to change? Well, one of the things that's really great is that I just have spent seven years being the head of a college and I travel now a lot to other universities and speak to students and so on you know there's a new generation coming through and they feel differently about all this stuff and the whole gender thing is now really being discussed and talked about and of course there's all the business about gender fluidity and so forth but there's also much more I think sensitivity to the way that people can be um, damaged and hurt by um, the ways in which we've sort of have expectations of how 
you know, women ought to behave and mm. the like. And young men are much more conscious of that than certainly they, they were even 20 years ago. Yeah. So um, I'm hopeful, but I think that we have to really drive this onto the agenda. And I do hope that government, in saying that you know they're planning to do stuff about women in the justice system, that they actually really do move into action rather than words. Yeah. Uh, and another bit in your book that I particularly liked was when you said when you're wanting to get justice for women, it's not about reducing justice for men. I know that there's this... Because I come up against that a lot when I'm talking to people about women in the justice system. If I had a pound for every time a man said, well, what about the men, Edwina? I was like, well, I'm not talking about them and you're a judge so I wouldn't talk to you about dentistry it's, it, but it is interesting I, I took part in a big debate recently with Jeremy and Greer and I was talking about the fact that we want to have a society where there is this equity and where men and women stand solidly equal to each other and he put his hand up and he said so what's going to happen to us uh, he said as a man and I said I promise you you're not going to be redundant you know <laughs> uh, and uh, life actually in a fair and more just society actually will be better for men too because you know, we're talking about enriching our both our lives so that men mm. might be able to spend more time with their children and their families. And there's a sense in which they too can be, I mean, it's terrible to say this, but there was something wonderful about the courage of those men who spoke out about how they as children had been abused by oh, coaches yeah. in football. And the bravery in, in talking about that, because men are burdened with notions of masculinity, which um, which are pretty heavy going for them too. Mm. So it, we want to unravel some of that. And I always say to, you know, the sex is better anyway as well, if you have a more equal society. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's some stuff in this for you guys too. But it's seen as loss for men. They, yeah. they, they think, oh my God. Women's if, gain is a man's loss. That's right. Yeah. And I do sometimes hear young women saying, um, if we want to get justice in the in the system, then, you know, why shouldn't it be that men have to prove that they're innocent when it comes to rape cases? You know, that men have to be, that the burden should move to them. And I have to say, look, I've spent 40 odd years practicing in the law and there are some things that actually are worth keeping yeah. and that is high standards before you punish people yeah. because liberty is at stake and those are things that are fundamental in a civilised society and they're fundamental in a democracy and so um, you don't buy more justice for women at the expense of justice for men Absolutely. and so we're talking this is not a zero sum game you know it's not it's not that you know less, less for them um, is the only way of, of improving things for women it really isn't and so we have to see this as being a step forward for, for all of us Do you think it's a bit like if you take the topic of racism, it's difficult maybe for a white person who's not racist to understand it? Because if you're not black, you can't understand those little things that people say and that sort of the stuff that goes on. And do you think actually it's quite difficult for some men and some women to really understand the patriarchy and the fact that it exists because it's quite an abstract thing it's sort of hard to define in many ways or maybe it's easier to define but it's more difficult to put examples it's a bit like sort of invisible bullying in the workplace isn't it yes i mean so, i mean what we know about patriarchy is that it is about power i mean if we look around yes women's lives have been enhanced hugely in my lifetime and in the lifetimes of our parents so yes great advances and women are now almost in every walk of life and so forth 
Who are the people who are really exercising real power? And of course, power in in our societies goes hand in hand with money. Mm. And by and large, it's men. And the media, who control the media? By and large, it's men. And so we've got to say that some of the things that are so fundamental to the workings of a society are still essentially in the hands of men. Now, of course, there are women and I probably am one of them, going into professions that were male-controlled, that were absolutely male-dominated, who learned how to play the game. We learned how to do it like the Mm. guys did it. Mm. And you'll see women who are even better at it than the guys. But who laid down the rules, the ground rules? And so that's why sometimes, you know, yes, we can see women in senior positions, but they might not necessarily be doing it um, with a really radical and interesting change in their minds because Mm. they've accepted, um, if you like, the parameters that were laid down before. I rather like the idea that if you're going to be governing everywhere, there has to be a question of how does this play for women? What are the implications of this budget for women? Because some of the things that we decide to do you know, have a much greater impact on women. And that's why I think that when it comes to justice, where we face that, dealing with people equally who are not equal yeah. does not produce equal outcomes. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't. You don't get justice if you give a woman exactly the same sentence as a man, but you find out that three, she has three children and no other support and that those three kids are going to be taken into care and so on. So you've got to really look at the, the particular context and the situation that, that people come to mm. the courts with. And so I do think that there are rather crude ideas of what equality means. Um, Absolutely. And and when I sort of think about access to justice, um, you can either answer this question or not when it comes to legal aid and when mm-hmm. legal aid was sort of all but sort of abolished, which really sort of meant that if you don't have the money, you don't have the chance to represent yourself. I mean, No, I feel heartbroken about it. I mean, reflect and honestly, on that. I mean, Edwina, one of the problems about this is that we turned around in the face of the global economic crisis of 2008 and we introduced great cuts, particularly to welfare. And I don't see justice as welfare. Mm. And so I say to people in all of the political parties, justice and access to justice is actually much more fundamental than many things. Once you make it difficult for certain people to access justice, you really are interfering with something that is the mortar in a society. And so legal aid for me is not a welfare issue. It's too important, too fundamental for that. Mm. And the idea that whole tracts of, of law were taken out of the legal aid system, I think was a mistake, which isn't to say that you don't try to make it much more efficient and that you don't try and make sure that those who can pay do and that mm. there isn't there isn't fraudulence around it. But I think that um, many ordinary people have suffered and women have, have suffered as a consequence of it. Mm. You talk about black women uh, resisting uh, feminism, saying that they've resisted it for a long time. Um, is that sort of changing? And, and and you sort of talk about the fact that, you know, if that's been difficult for them, then really the sort of gender thing is just another yeah. another battle they have to fight. I think it's important for me to say that when I say that, I'm saying that they've resisted, if you like, feminism in inverted commas, mm. you know, feminist movements, you know, which seem to be very dominated by white women. And also the way in which the analysis was done. Because for, for many of my black women friends, they'll say to you, I have seen how my father was treated and my brothers are treated and how they've experienced policing on the streets and how they're mm. stopped if they're driving a car that's considered too fancy for a black man to have. Mm. And the automatic assumptions, you know, we saw it with the Stephen Lawrence case that here's a young man of great talent who's 
stabbed. And the assumption at the time by police was that he must be involved in drugs and he must have been uh, himself bringing it on his head. And so many of uh, the, my black women friends will say, it's not the same. And so we, we haven't wanted to join up with this sort of thing of, you know, turning on the guys because we know that it's more complicated than that. It's complex and that there are multiple layers of this. Mm. And the word that young women have invented for this is intersectionality. The idea that, you know, if you're a white woman, you can experience inequality. But if you're, you know, a working class woman and you're black or, and you may have, you know, be gay, then you, you have multiple ways in which yeah. you experience um, discrimination. And so black women have been reluctant in the past often to join up with white women's organisations, you know, organisations that they feel are white because right. they say they don't understand the experience of black people, particularly in criminal justice mm. because, you know, all that work of David Lammy has shown that, you know, that there are still problems around the ways in which black youth particularly experience um, policing and they experience the court system and that they come to it suspicious and distrustful because of their experiences and women come to the system in the same way, mm. distrustful, even distrustful of lawyers. Absolutely. And I think we saw a lot of that. Um, It certainly didn't help anything. And it was a horrific situation. The grooming of girls for sex by gangs in Rochdale and Rotherham. Oxford, Newcastle, Manchester. I mean, and that and that's a big sort of cultural piece again, isn't it? That was the thing that um, I felt was that you know suddenly we had the Me Too thing and people were all saying, oh, this is all going too far and so on. And my answer to this was, listen, this is not just about celebrities. The reason that young women are saying we've had enough. Um, and time's up is because they've looked at all the other stuff, the, you know, the Jimmy Savile stuff over, over you know, decades and decades. And women did go to the police and women did go to their superiors and did make complaint, but were not listened to or were disbelieved. And so women often face that. And the young girls who were involved in all those northern scandals um, where the police and social services did not come to the aid of the, of the girls, there was a way in which they were seen as being, you know, they're making a lifestyle choice was the story on the policing side and on, and on the, and often even social service departments. The neglect of those girls was terrible and the disbelief of them. Mm. Now, it was seen and jumped on by some people that, you know, well, this was all Asian men who were doing this and it was, it, it's, it's an Asian man problem. It's not an Asian man problem. We know <laughs> that, 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 that there are white men who groom as well. Yeah. As a professional in the law, I have seen it over decades and it certainly isn't confined to the Asian community. And that nighttime culture of minicab drivers and takeaway food places often is nowadays in northern cities it's dominated by new immigrant communities but the abuse of women cuts across all races and classes and we have to recognise that if we want to create change and not do it as a blaming thing that this is about Asians it's, yeah. you know, there's more to it than that Exactly. Um, just a final reflection on your book and um, if you had one hope or maybe even two hopes or three yeah. hopes. You know, what do you really want to achieve sort of through this next book? If Eve was framed, your last book in 92 didn't quite get the impact that you said you'd like it to have had. Mm. What is your hope for Eve was shamed? Well, the great thing about Eve was framed when it came out in 92, now I have, you know, there are whole kind of generations of women come up to me when I see them and meet with them and say, you know, I went into the law because of you. And I, lo- mm. and I love that, that that encouraged women. And that generation of women are making a huge amount of change inside the law. 
law. This one is looking at really deeply embedded attitudes, which most of us don't even admit to. And we all have them. And me too, you know, um, we all have have attitudes Mm. um, about what is appropriate for men and women and so on. And we've got to kind of get below that and say, how is this actually making life harder for women and how can men be our partners in creating the change which will benefit us all. So I want to get really underneath the skin of this and to look at our unconscious biases and prejudices to see whether we can't create change that is deeper than what we've Mm. got so far. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I'm going to read this book from beginning to end and everyone at Christmas time is also going to receive a copy of Evil Ashamed. So um, brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much. Oh, lovely to see you, Edwina. And congratulations on all your work because you're an amazing woman. Thanks so much. Edwina was in conversation with human rights lawyer Baroness Helena Kennedy QC. Next time on Justice. Would you say that the thread that goes through that is the fact that we're talking about women and girls, we're talking about females and we're talking about trauma? Yes. Edwina is talking to Catherine Sachs-Jones, Chief Executive of the Campaign Group Agenda and Co-Chair of the Government's Mental Health Task Force. The kind of consistent theme in women's lives, whether they end up in prison or homeless or maybe moving between different situations is they have nearly all without fail had quite extensive histories of violence and abuse and that often starts in childhood. That's next time on the Justice Podcast. The Justice Podcast is brought to you in association with One Small Thing. For more information go to onesmallthing.org.uk Justice is an MIM production. For more information, go to madeinmanchester.tv. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.